do a quick uh, sound level check, the volume okay? This month, um, 13 years ago, I was partway through, about a third of the way through a a year-long pilgrimage in India. And at that time I was uh, the attendant to a Buddhist monk uh, named Ajahn Amaro. He's now currently the abbot at a monastery called Amaravati in England. And we had, he had arranged for a year sabbatical from being the abbot at a Bayagiri in California. And I knew him from uh, many years before that and um, agreed to attend, to uh, to accompany him along with another friend, um, kind of tag team attendance for his year-long pilgrimage. And in October of that year, 13 years ago, we had just concluded uh, spending the rains retreat, the 12 weeks of the Vasa, the period where one in this tradition, Theravada tradition, stays in one place. We had just finished the rains, which we had spent in a place called Savati. And uh, it's a, in many, more of the Buddha's discourses were given there in that place than any other single place. And there's a famous uh, grove called the Jetta's Grove, Jetavana, just outside the old city. And uh, now it's a, it's a park and uh, a place of pilgrimage, and there are all kinds of um, viharas, they're called, places, the same word as Brahma Vihara, it's an, a place, an abode, places where pilgrims can stay there in the area. And we were staying in one of those, and our <clears throat> morning uh, ritual was to wake up quite early before the sunrise, and we would make our way to the Jetavana, and we each had our spot there to meditate for the morning. And we would walk out across the rice fields. And uh, in rural India, life hasn't changed very much since the time of the Buddha in many places. Uh, there are motorized vehicles, but out in the fields, they're still plowing them by hand and carts are being pulled by bullocks. and. Uh, it feels very timeless sometimes. And uh, we would head off with our, we had an entourage of dogs from the monastery, which we had named. There was Biscuit and Cookie and Krispy Kreme and, uh, and Sachin Tendulkar and a couple of others. And uh, Ajahn Amaro made me promise not to tell anyone at the monastery that we had all these dogs because he said they were always wanting to have pets at the monastery. And, really wouldn't work there. And he didn't want people saying, well, Ajahn Amaro had six dogs in India. <laughs> so we would go to the uh, walk along. It was a 15, 20 minute walk from where we were staying to the grove there. And uh, almost every morning we would hear some chanting playing uh, over a loudspeaker, someone, a monk, or uh, someone would be doing chanting in the early morning hours and it would drift out across the fields. And uh, one chant that we heard uh, very frequently was the Satipatthana Sutta. So I'm gonna play a little bit of uh, that chant for you this evening. This one is um, done in the style from Sri Lanka. It's a monk named um, Venerable Omalpe Sobita Mahatera. 
and uh, just play a little bit of it and you can just let the sound uh, wash over and through you. Uh, this beautiful chanting of this very, probably one of the most beloved um, teachings of the Buddha and the one that forms the, the basis and the core for our meditation practice and the instructions we give you and that we'll be giving you. It'll take me just a moment here. Bhagavato Namutasa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambuddhasa Namutasa Arahato Samma Sambuddhasa Namutas Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambuddhas Evang me sutang Ekang samayang Bhagava Kuru suviherati Kammas dhammang nama Purunang nigamo Tatrako Bhagavad Bhikkhu Amante Si Bhikkhavoti Badante Ti Te Bhikkhu Bhagavato Pachasosum Bhagavad Etadvocha Ekayano ayam bhikkave maggo Sattanam visuddhya soka paridvanam Samatikamaya dukkha domanasanam Atthagamaya nyayasa adhigamaya Nibbanasa satchikiriyaya yadidam Chattaro satipatthana Katame chattaro ida bhikkave bhikkhu kaye kaya nupasi viharati atapi sampajano satima vinaya loke abhijado manasam Whenever I play that chant, which I do sometimes at the beginning of a talk, I 
feel drawn to just let it keep playing. Nothing I say will <clears throat> come up to that. But I think there's something powerful and, and uh, really beautiful and powerful in hearing the teachings in the original language, in the Pali language. Um, this language exists for us now only as a vehicle for these teachings. It's not spoken or used in any other way. And it's been the vehicle for these teachings in this oral tradition of repeating these teachings over a very long time now. So these, uh, this, I'd like to read a, an English translation. You know, Pali sounds all very cool and exotic to us. But it was the spoken language at that time in that place. This is uh, that first stanza. And it begins with the words, Ewang me sutang, which means, thus I have heard. And uh, these, these teachings were heard and memorized, and they weren't written down for nearly well, between two and three hundred years after the Buddha passed away. So they were, they were, they all, almost all suttas begin with those words, thus, thus have I heard. On one occasion, the Blessed One was living in the Kuru country, where there was a town of the Kurus named Kamasadamma. There he addressed the bhikkhus thus, Bhikkhus, venerable sir, they replied. The Blessed One then said this, Bhikkhus, this is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the surmounting of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of pain and grief, for the attainment of the true way, and for the realization of Nibbana namely the four establishments of mindfulness. That's kind of a, a powerful way to begin this teaching. This is a direct path leading to the end of, of suffering, you could say, in these different ways that he speaks about this. And that could sound kind of good, but it could, um, could lead to some questions coming up in the mind, you know, what, what does this actually mean in practical terms or what would it look like in, in our life? This word satipatthana, which I just translated as establishment of mindfulness, usually it's called a foundation of a mindfulness, but I, I think the word, um, the translation establishment of mindfulness is uh, a more literal and a better translation in some ways. Uh, it's a combination of sati, which is the Pali word for mindfulness, and upatana, which means establishment. And it may be a subtle distinction, but I think it's an important one because it places more emphasis on this idea of establishing the quality of awareness, of mindful awareness. There's more emphasis on that than on what the object of one's attention might be at any given moment. And so we establish a mindful relationship to whatever's happening. Doesn't matter what it is. 
And I think we could equate this with the sense of, of dwelling or abiding. Abiding in mindful awareness, you could say. We make our home there. We establish that as our, our place of abiding. And that's the key because we can learn what we need to from any object that may arise. So it's this quality of mindfulness that is the key here. Anything that arises can serve as the vehicle for insight. And so this teaching, in this teaching, the Buddha breaks down the entirety of our experience, everything that we can know in the body, in the mind, in the heart, into uh, these four, um, you could say, four spheres of attention, or one teacher calls them frames of reference. So everything is included there, but it's, we're looking at it in, in particular ways. And I'm, I'm just going to say a little bit about this, the four uh, satipatthanas tonight. Um, we'll be, we talk about them uh, whether it's explicitly or not, it's everything we say in the realm of the instructions um, is, uh, re- is a reflection of this teaching. But the four Satipatthanas briefly are uh, Kaya or body, Kaya Nupasana, Vedana or the feeling tone associated with all contacts of pleasant, unpleasant or neither pleasant nor unpleasant. Or we might say neutral for shorthand. Chitta, which is mind, or mind and heart put together. And in this case, we're looking at uh, qualities that arise in the mind that influence the the quality of the mind. It's a very powerful, simple teaching. And Dhamma, Dhamma Nupasana. Uh, Dhammas, um, you could say they're, sometimes it's called mind objects, but it's kind of ways to look at uh, what's happening in the mind and heart different lenses we can look through or different patterns of experience. You don't have to remember these. Don't sweat this at all. The one I want to point at tonight is following on from uh, <clears throat> what Andrea was saying last night is, is this the way that the entirety of our experience is included in these four satipatthanas and these four establishments of mindfulness, it's all in there. Andrea said, uh, no part left out. We don't leave anything out. And this could seem obvious to us, but there's something very important in this. Our practice does and must include a relationship with our entire being, with every aspect of our life, of who we are or it will never come to completion, will never come to fulfillment. We cannot leave anything out. It's not possible for it to bear fruit if we're leaving anything out. And so in this regard, our practice is not about somehow escaping from certain aspects of our life, somehow gaining a sort of control over our life experience so that we don't have to feel certain things or have certain kinds of experiences or or only have it be what we like. There's a different kind of freedom that is pointed at through this teaching that's a kind of independence, an unconditioned kind of freedom that is not dependent on things being a particular way. 
And so then I also think it's important that we have some kind of understanding or, or sense or feeling of what the Buddha might have been pointing to when he said, this is the path leading to the surmounting of sorrow and lamentation for the disappearance of pain and grief, for the attainment of the true way, for the realization of Nibbana. What's this about? I mean, it sounds like we're never going to feel any painful feelings in the body or mind. We're not going to have any difficult emotions or mental states. That's what it, it sounds like maybe that's being promised here. I think if we were to uh, ask anyone in this room what, what um, might inspire any one of us to come and spend time on a retreat like this, to undertake what we might call a, a life of meditation or a spiritual practice, however we, however we might hold that, I think that underneath any individual stories and, and things that are personal to any one of us, we would find that there is this movement of heart um, towards happiness or ease or peace or something, some words that we would use to point to that. So we're moved by that and it's a beautiful wish to be happy, truly happy, deeply happy. And this is tied usually to some sense of dis-ease or, or, or struggle or a lack of that dissatisfaction. There's, if we're looking for a deep happiness, it must not be here now or we wouldn't need to look for it, right? So it's tied to stress or struggle or, or what we might call even suffering in our lives in some level or other. And if this sense of dis-ease is to lead us to what we could say is a genuine kind of spiritual search, I think we need to touch um, both the depth and maybe we could say the breadth of the kind of insecurity that, that is underlying that, that's giving rise to that lack of ease. We need to have an understanding of what is called dukkha, dukkha in Pali. This is the, goes to the heart of what the Buddha was teaching and was touched on last night. I'm following on from that. Some, some real relationship to this, this um, fundamental concept in a, in a direct way is crucial to our understanding and um, it's where we, we have to start there. And so to say a, a bit about dukkha, because I think it gets a kind of a superficial uh, treatment a lot, you know, it's at least in places like this, there's people always talking about dukkha, this is dukkha, that's dukkha. We hear it a lot. And on the most elemental level, we could say that dukkha points to uh, pain and painful sensations and feelings that come in the body, associated just with having a body, with taking birth, with, with living, with aging, with illness that comes at times, with the process of dying when that comes and with difficult, difficult mental, emotional states that come. Buddha said dukkha was not getting what we want, getting what we don't want, 
association with the pleasant, unpleasant, having the pleasant disappear, things like that. And sometimes um, dukkha, there's real suffering in the mind and heart in our lives because of circumstances that come. But no matter who we are, no matter what our life circumstances, there are times when life is difficult and, and when it's just hard. And we're faced with challenging and painful situations and painful feelings and experiences. And it's not the whole story. Buddhism gets misunderstood as the Buddha said, well, life is suffering. Buddha didn't say life is suffering, but gets misunderstood. There's, There's joy and beauty. The 10,000 joys, the 10,000 sorrows. This is just the, the way life is. We get that range. On a more a subtle level, dukkha points to a quality of, uh, you could say, unreliability or insecurity that's um, woven into the thread of all of our experience, to th- thread through our whole life. It's a kind of... Uh, feels it's a subtle inner anxiety, you could say. It's woven into every experience, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. It applies in, in all cases, even to that which we experience as beautiful and pleasant. And it's a, it's a kind of fragility that is born of um, the fact that things are subject to change. Pleasant experiences don't last, so they are dukkha in this way. They're not reliable. There's an unsatisfactoriness to it all because it is liable to change. It's vulnerable in this way. It, it shows up as this feeling of vulnerability often. Things are subject to change and largely out of our direct control. Not entirely, but largely. We can't have it be the way we want it to be. Too bad. And meditation, unfortunately, is not giving us a tool to accomplish that. It's not getting, giving us a tool to make it always be the way we want. Sometimes we're, we're holding out hope. That's what we're getting here. <laughs> it's only going to be pleasant. Somehow we'll get it. And we're kind of conditioned to think that we're supposed to get our lives to a point where it is only pleasant and we're only happy all the time. I mean, we wouldn't, none of us would actually say that's something we think should be possible, but secretly we have some hope that that's true. <laughs> and we might be showing up at a retreat because we think, ah, they, they've got a way to do that. You know, and we're supposed to look like people in a TV commercial where we're not only so happy, but we're really good looking too. <laughs> And, and so, because we can't pull it off and get our life to look like a TV commercial, we take this, this truth of dukkha personally as though somehow it's our fault or if we had our act together, it wouldn't be like that. But, but we're just gonna get that range. That's just the, the way it is. We get this range of life's changing fortunes that. That's the movement of of life. We get pleasure and pain and joy and sorrow and fame and disrepute and 
gain and loss. We don't want to look at it. We don't want to see it. And, and it's not our fault that we can't make it be always the way we want it to be and always pleasant. It's just the way it is. And so the liberation that the Buddha was talking about is not somehow escaping from that flow from pleasant and un- of pleasant and unpleasant and all the ways that shows up. That's not what it's about. It's not escaping from that. The Buddha had a chronic bad back. He had all kinds of problemos. People trying to make problems for him and, you know, get him, get him killed by rampaging elephants and all kinds of stuff. He had days that he probably would rather have stayed in his kuti and met up with people he would probably have preferred to avoid. So life goes on with this flow of joy and, and sorrow and pleasure and pain and all the rest. But, but our relationship to that and, the, and suffering or non-suffering in relation to it, that's, that's where we're working here. That's where the Buddha was pointing to when he was talking in this teaching. It's not that we don't ever feel any unpleasant sensations or we don't have sadness or sorrow. And of course we do our best to live well and we, we live with as much grace and integrity as we can and we, we can add something into this. We're not completely without any, any power or agency in, in the course of our life. We, there are things we can do, but, um, but opening to this, this deep fragility or unreliability is really um, where we, we need to start there. It's where we start. It's where the Buddha started. The uh, great Thai forest uh, monk Ajahn Chah said this, in Dhamma practice we begin with the truth of dukkha, this pervasive unsatisfactoriness of existence. But as soon as we experience it, we lose heart. We don't want to look at it. Dukkha is really the truth, but we want to get around it somehow. Dukkha is a noble truth. If we allow ourselves to actually face it, then we will start to seek a way out. If we are trying to go somewhere and the road is blocked, we will think about how to make a pathway. So we have to start there. And so there's this key understanding that the Buddha came to in his exploration of of this dilemma of the human condition, you could say, faced with the truth of change and the unreliability, uncontrollability of experience. He found that, that suffering and stress and struggle in relation to this truth is in great part born in the mind and in our relationship to it wanting things, struggling against this truth, wanting things to be uh, different than they are, fighting against the truth of change. And, and in saying all this, there's no way that I'm denying the very real suffering that exists in the world for so many and the, the truths of injustice and poverty and oppression are all too real. And we do get sick and life is hard. But if we look closely and deeply, we'll see that 
the root of a lot of our struggle and stress. And suffering has its genesis in the mind and is directly tied to how we're relating to what's happening to the truth of dukkha, to this unreliability. This runs really counter to uh, our conditioning in a lot of ways because we have this, we're very conditioned to look outside ourselves for the source of our suffering and struggles and for the, the solution to that. But it's actually, it's a, it's a hopeful thing. <laughs> this is actually really good news. Might not sound like good news at this point, but it is good news because if our suffering were entirely tied to the conditions that we encounter, there would be, there'd be no, no, ultimately no hope because we can't control things and we can't have it only be the way we want it to be. So the Buddha saw that we have a misunderstanding here about how to find a real happiness, but that we can undo this misunderstanding because the key to suffering and non-suffering to freedom or bondage is to be found right within the, our own mind and heart. That's where, and we, have, we can work there. We have some ability to bring something to that. We can undo, change the way we, we see things, we understand things, and we can learn a way to find balance, ease, and a kind of freedom right within the changing conditions of our life. There's another quotation from Ajahn Chah. There are two kinds of suffering. The suffering that leads to more suffering and the suffering that leads to the end of suffering. If you are not willing to face face the second kind of suffering, you will surely continue to experience the first. If we're not willing to connect with dukkha in a way that leads to the end of suffering, we're just going to keep cycling. And this is the rolling on of samsara. Because until we open to dukkha in a real way, in a practical, in a meaningful, personal way for each of us, until we open to this, we're going to always be turning to that which just by its nature is inherently unreliable, incapable of being the source for our lasting happiness. Because it, you know, any experience, even the coolest thing, the most sublime thing, the most beautiful state of meditation and bliss. It's great and it's not gonna last. So if our happiness or freedom is tied to having that experience, what do we do when it goes away or when we can't find it again somehow? Last retreat, this retreat, it's not there. What do we do? We'll always be turning to that which cannot provide this source of lasting happiness or peace or freedom. It's not wrong or bad. We're just asking it to do something it can't do. It's not fair to ask that of it. And so when we open to dukkha in a skillful way, then we can, as Ajahn Shah was saying, we seek a reliable path. We seek a way around something that might actually lead us to real happiness. This is opening to the the suffering, you could say, that leads to the end of suffering. And this brings us to this very famous statement of the Buddha. He said, uh, 
I teach now and before, I teach one thing only, suffering and the end of suffering. Actually two things, but you get the point there. That's all I point to, is understanding this. Andrea was talking about this last night. Understand the nature of it. Through that we understand the cause and we realize the end of suffering by abandoning or letting go of releasing the cause of it. That's how we come to an understanding there. And so then in this way we can move, we can move from seeing our flow of experience of the pleasant and the unpleasant, we move away from seeing it in terms of um, good and bad and what we like and don't like and what we want and don't want. We simply see it in terms of, of suffering and what leads to the end of suffering. We see where we get caught, where we're struggling, where we're suffering. We start to see what will lead us to be able to let go of, those, of the cause of it. And so we, we shift towards uh, a harmony with the way things are rather than struggling against the way things are, rather than struggling against the truth of change, the truth of this unreliability. We start to come into uh, an alignment with that in a way that shifts our view and allows us to, um, to look at how we're relating and touch into the possibility of um, finding a, a peace and a freedom that is to a profound extent totally independent of life's changing conditions. It's not dependent on that. It's not about what's happening. And so the key that unlocks the door to this kind of freedom is mindfulness, mindful awareness, what Andrea was speaking about last night. It's, it's this, this simple ability we all have to be aware of the present moment in its arising. Check it out right now. Ask this question in your mind, is there awareness? It's a good question to ask once in a while because you always get to say yes. <laughs> you might not have been mindful in the previous or aware in the previous moment and you might not be in the next one. But when you ask that question, you are. So you might bring it in once in a while. It's, um, yeah, it's elevating. <laughs> yes, get to say yes. And it's not some huge thing. You don't have to like, you know, get all tight and scrunched up and say, here it comes, I'm gonna have it. Here's my moment of awareness, I can feel it. Mm. It's not like that, right? Is there awareness? Yes. No big deal. And yet it is a very big deal. It's so simple and so It can, it can just be taken for granted and overlooked. But this thing is, this ability to show up for, to actually be present for our life makes everything possible. This is a complete game changer, friends. With this, everything is possible. Without it, nothing is possible. There's a famous verse in the Dhammapada. I know many of you will recognize this. Mindfulness is the path to the deathless. 
Heedlessness is the path to death. The mindful do not die. The heedless are as if dead already. That's pretty strong. Buddha didn't pull the punches a lot of the time. With, as I was saying, with this quality, everything's possible. Without it, we're just living out our conditioning as if dead already. In the Buddha's words. Get a feel and a taste the flavor of that awareness again right now in this moment. Is there awareness? Let's feel it. It's right here. Always, any moment, always available. Doesn't matter what's happening. That's the beauty of it. Always possible. The Buddha often used uh, images and simple kinds of illustrations to point to, um, to try to sort of help illustrate um, points he was trying to make. And there's a famous image um, that's talking about the, the, the path of practice, our journey in meditation in, in this, along this path. Um, an image that's used quite often is of using a raft to cross a flooded area. And this is one, you know, one place where he speaks in this way with this image. Suppose someone were traveling along a path and saw a great expanse of water with the near shore dubious and risky and the further shore secure and free from risk. But with neither a ferry boat nor a bridge going from this shore to the other, the thought would occur to them, here is this great expanse of water with the near shore dubious and risky and the further shore secure and free from risk, but with neither a ferry boat nor a bridge going from this shore to the other. What if I were to gather grass and twigs and branches and leaves, and having bound them together to make a raft, were to cross over to safety to the other shore in dependence on the raft, and by making an effort with my hands and my feet? Then having gathered together grass, twigs, branches, and leaves, and having bound them together to make a raft, they would then cross over to safety to the other shore, in dependence on the raft, and by making an effort with their hands and feet. So they're saying this image of a raft used quite often, and I think it's a, I like it, I think it's a good image. It's useful. It's useful in a, in a few ways. Often we can feel as though there's this flood in our lives. And this can be part of what might uh, even inspire or motivate us to, to come to meditation, to come to a spiritual life. This sense of, of a flood of, uh, that's sweeping us along, that's sweeping our, our life along, a flood of uh, all kinds of things, of flood of change and worries and duties and our responsibilities and pressures in life and unpredictability, flood of change. And so we can see 
this crossing of this flood some way of navigating that, you could say, finding a way to some place where, where we're not getting swept away, where there's some stability or security. Uh, the Buddha called it a place of um, safety, free of risk, a place of refuge, we could say, real refuge, reliable. Now we need to be careful not to hold images like this too literally because it's not that we're actually going somewhere other than where we are right now or getting something we don't have. We end up where we started, but our understanding has changed. Um, these are a few lines from a poem by T.S. Eliot from Little Gidding, it's part of the Four Quartets. We shall not cease from exploration and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. So nothing changes. We, we arrive where we started. Nothing changes and yet everything is radically transformed by the power of insight and understanding and wisdom a deep seeing into the truth of the way things are and the release that comes from that. And so our raft is used to cross the flood of confusion and ignorance and struggle to, you could say, the secure ground of wisdom and understanding. Another useful consideration in this, this image of, of a raft crossing a flood is, uh, has to do with, with what the raft is made out of. And it also brings us right back to this teaching in the Satipatthana where we take everything, all of our life, all of the stuff of our life is, is what we're bringing attention to, we're bringing mindfulness to all of it. And this description might have noticed that um, the raft was made out of kind of not really great stuff. <laughs> it's leaves and twigs and branches and kind of not what you'd think of being like really great raft material. There's not certain, it's not special stuff. We don't go and find, you know, teak and smooth it down and it's, it's made from what's right there on the shore, what's right at hand. And so our raft in our practice is made from the materials of our ongoing moment-to-moment -moment experience. It's made out of pleasant and unpleasant feelings in our body. It's made of pressure and heat, tension and tightness. It's made out of sleepiness and thoughts and bad moods. And joy and sorrow and restlessness and irritation and boredom. Boredom's a great kind of structural member for the raft. <laughs> Weave that baby in there. We, we put it all in there. Stuff we like, we beautiful, unbeautiful, all kinds of stuff. We use that. 
So the vehicle for our freedom, our liberation, is this kind of stuff. It's the mundane stuff of everyday life. It's pleasant or unpleasant. It's coarse or gross. This is what we find in this teaching of the Satipatthana. We use this stuff. Everything, anything is suitable. It's all good for making the raft, the vehicle. And it is a raft. It's not like a really cool yacht. <laughs> you know, it's, rafts are, this raft especially, it's a pretty funky raft. Reminds me, when I was a kid, I grew up near this, I grew up in the southwest. We didn't have, we had dammed up all the rivers, but we had this big irrigation canal. It was, we related to it as a river. And we would, we built, our, my friends and I built, we'd build rafts to go down this thing until we got caught because it wasn't, we weren't supposed to. But, and we used just junk from around the neighborhood. We made it out of sticks and trash that people were with old plastic bottles that we would stop up so they would float it and piles of yard trimmings and stuff we found in the alleys behind houses. And it was just, that's what, that's kind of like this leaves and branches and twigs of the Buddhas, you know. It's just, it was junk in the neighborhood that nobody wanted. We built our raft out of that. So we got, we, we didn't sink, but we didn't stay dry. <laughs> floating on the raft, you know, and we propelled it with our hands and feet. And so we're going to probably get wet crossing the flood. We're going to have to repair the raft once in a while. And so in our meditation, in our practice, we're constantly repairing, constructing our raft out of the stuff of our ongoing experience in the moment. We gather it up, whatever it is. We bind it together with this awareness that we can touch right now. Is there awareness? Yes. That's the lashing, the binding that holds it. We bind it with that. And then we propel it with our own effort, our own intention. So this quality of mindfulness, of awareness, that holds this junk together. And the steady and more continuous it is, the more stable and, and um, our raft is going to be. And even if our raft gets broken up by a strong current or we hit a rock, we can gather stuff back and we can make a new one right in the moment, even out in the middle of the flood. There's always some junk floating by. We can grab it and lash it in there. Something will come around, whatever is there. We don't have to have special stuff. We don't have to have only certain special experiences, only what we like. This is really good news for us. We don't have to have anything in particular going on. We can use any of it. And so then in our practice, we combine this beautiful natural ability we have to be aware right now in the moment, to know it's like this right now, present moment awareness. We combine that with 
this receptive, relaxed, kind attention. Bring those together and we begin to cultivate a certain stability, continuity, a balance of mind that starts to arise. We bring these together over and over, beginning again. It starts to to become more stable. It settles and rests on experience. We rest within and on our life, on reality, in a more stable and uh, way that lets us actually stay with life because we're not struggling against it. We can stay there long enough to actually go below the surface and start to see more deeply into what's actually going on and what is leading to suffering and what is leading to freedom and happiness. We see what is worth cultivating, what energies are worth following, and what is good to let go of, to release, to abandon, to set aside. We start to be able to see this, know this, find this, touch this directly in our experience. Not because we're getting some special thing to go on, So we start being able to make wise choices in terms of what we're doing and what what will lead us to happiness. And we reorient our relationship to this intrinsic unreliability of, of dukkha. And rather than fighting against it, we're trying to hold on to something that's gonna change in the in the hope that it's gonna be the source of our lasting happiness. We we stop struggling. We don't fight against it, we don't see it as a mistake or something that's our fault. We, we just stop asking it to provide something it can't provide. We don't have to take it personally. We don't have to judge it, we don't have to judge ourselves. We just don't look there for true safety, for refuge, for stability, for freedom. We don't look there. We Instead, we take refuge in this ability to be aware, in wakefulness, in the truth of the way things are. We take refuge in this simple capacity to be aware right now. You can check it out once more. Is there awareness? Yes. We take refuge in that. And this reveals a place of of wisdom that arises in our own heart. It's revealed. We're not finding it and putting it in there. It's already there. It's a place inside that already knows and is already free. Let's sit together quietly for a few more minutes. We can let these words drift away. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org.
www.ghostbusters.org slash donate.